So I went home that night and uh, began to uh, talk to my husband about it. And I said, hey, uh, great news. We're going to buy a, a home care company. And he said, what do you know about home yeah. care? And I'm like, oh, I don't know anything. Right. <laughs> but as we talked about it a little bit, just decided that uh, it was a good time to uh, to take a risk. And so I went back literally the next day and uh, we began the process of transferring the ownership of the business into my name. I was 25 years old. Wow. And I had been in home care for 58 days yeah. when I became the owner of a home health care company. And so it was really a, an unusual set of circumstances, still knowing absolutely nothing about home care, only what you could have learned in 58 days. Right. <laughs> and welcome to Pop Health Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Morgan. It's been a while since I've been with you all, so it's great to be back. If you work in the healthcare industry, you're probably familiar with the name Encompass Health. As one of the four largest home health and hospice providers in the nation, they touch literally thousands of lives each day. What you may not know is that CEO April Anthony bought and founded her first home health company when she was only 25 years old, after having been in the healthcare industry for a whopping 58 days. The story from there is both inspiring and harrowing, uh, and I'm excited to share it with you today. As always, thank you so much for joining us on Pop Health Podcast. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Encompass Health, Home Health and Hospice CEO, April Anthony. April, so thanks so much for sitting down uh, with me today in actually your own internal podcast studio. Uh, this is a rarity for us. Usually we are uh, setting up in an office space or a conference room. So I really appreciate you having us. Uh, as we like to start each show, uh, can you tell the audience maybe a fun fact or something that people don't necessarily know about you, maybe something outside of the work uh, work world? Well, I, uh, I haven't uh, jumped out of an airplane or anything exciting. So what I was thinking about, well, what would be an interesting fact? When I was a child, I had two older brothers. And my dream, people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say the quarterback of the Houston Oilers. <laughs> and okay. it's still kind of my dream, even though the Houston Oilers don't exist any, yeah. any longer. I would uh, I would still love to have that, uh, that opportunity. So I'm living vicariously through my son, who is a college quarterback. That's as close as I may ever get. Oh, great. Uh, locally here in Texas? He's or? in Texas. Yeah, he's at Christian, which is my alma mater. So it's uh, been a fun, fun time. He's a senior now. So we're about to have the end of the season. Excellent. Uh, and are you originally from Texas? I grew up in Houston and okay. then have been in Dallas now for 28 years. So yeah. kind of uh, more of a, a Dallasite than a Houstonian. Yeah. And are you still a fan of the professional uh, NFL teams here? Or did it kind of, once they changed from, uh, from the Oilers, did it kind of move on? Yeah. When the Oilers became the Texans, I had to uh, revert to being a Dallas Cowboys fan. And now I'm an avid Dallas. <laughs> Cowboys fan. <laughs> okay, well, uh, that's probably for the best here in Dallas. Exactly, I it's much safer. Most, yes, exactly. Uh, so, uh, as I was researching the show and getting ready to talk with you, uh, one thing that stuck out is that you're actually a CPA by trade. Um, what what kind of spurred your move to healthcare? Why why make that uh, transition? Well, it's uh, it's kind of a funny story, and I would love to say that I chose to move to healthcare, but uh, the story is actually a little bit different than that. I, I started out my career at Pricewaterhouse and did three years in the audit division there, and frankly, after the end of the uh, third busy season, 
my husband uh, said, hey, that wasn't very fun. And we were newlyweds at the time. And I said, hey, you should have been me. <laughs> it was really not fun right. if you were working those long hours. Um, and so we really talked about what we wanted for the future. And our plan had always been for me to be a stay-at-home mom. And so I thought, well, if that's the grand plan, no need to kill yourself at Price Waterhouse. Just go find a job. And as luck would have it, the economy was good. I put my resume out there. And sure enough, I got four job offers. And Three of them made a lot of sense. They were companies I'd done the audit work for. They were in industries that I had experience, which was primarily oil and gas and banking. One job offer really didn't make any sense. It was to be a controller in charge of the uh, accounting function for a home healthcare company. Yeah. I'd never done anything in healthcare. I didn't have any experience actually leading an accounting department. And yet, for some reason, I chose that job. And so I ended up uh, kind of stumbling blindly into healthcare. Uh, really thinking it would be a short-term career. As luck would have it, it turned out to be the last 28 years of my life now yeah, <laughs> as right. a place that I have loved being right. and an industry that I have uh, loved being a part of. Never along the way ended up being a stay-at-home mom, as it turned out. Uh, or the quarterback of the, <laughs> of the Or Oilers, the quarterback yeah. of the Houston Oilers. I've missed two big dreams. <laughs> I think it, it seems that it's worked out okay. Uh, what What did you know about home health going into um, that first job. Obviously, healthcare was a new thing, but what specifically about home health did you know? Yeah, so I really had um, very limited knowledge, but uh, but back in those days, home health was cost reimbursed, and so it was 1992. Home health was uh, was in the kind of the height of the cost reimbursement era, and so one of the first things I learned about home health care was that you actually had to uh, create these cost reports. And so what was kind of my first assignment when I came into this company, and they had four subsidiaries or four provider numbers, and so I began to build the cost report. And uh, when I got to the fourth one, I discovered that that particular cost report was well over the maximum limits. And so I went into the uh, CEO and owner of the company at the time and said, hey, I've, I've done these cost reports and you've got a problem. Yeah, <laughs> one of these right. is about $150,000 over the caps. And I'm a good accountant, so I've done a budget for the rest of the year. And it's actually going to get worse before it gets better because you've got to allocate your overhead proportionately. And it's yeah. going to result in it losing about $200,000. What would you like to do? And he said, well, let's sell it. And I was thinking, gosh, who buys money losing cost reimbursed yeah. businesses? How am I possibly going to sell this business? Right. But I said, okay, I'll, I'll try. And I started making some phone calls. I called some of my buddies over at Price Waterhouse that uh, I had met in the healthcare group and said, hey, who would buy a money losing cost reimbursed business? Yeah. And they said, well, that might be a challenge, but here's some names. And I started having conversations. Lo and behold, eventually in each conversation, I would have to get to that, you know, daunting fact <laughs> that we were losing money and we were never going to be able to recover it. And people would sort of look at me, you know, funny and say, yeah, we, we think we'll pass on that. And so yeah. I went back into the CEO's office a couple weeks later to kind of describe my activity and I'm super competitive. Maybe you've already gotten the sense of that with my <laughs> desire to be an NFL yes. quarterback, but I uh, really don't like to lose at things. And so I'm kind of describing here's who I've talked to and here's what they've all said. And it occurs to me that kind of my first major assignment is a failure and I hate to fail. And so instead of failing, I say, well, what if I just buy it? <laughs> and he says sold. And I said, well, wait a minute. I can't really buy it. I don't have any money. Right. Uh, but what I was really thinking is you would just give it to me because if you gave it to me, you've got enough capacity in the other three to absorb all your overhead. I would just take this one on. And if I didn't have your overhead allocation, perhaps I could get back to cost uh, neutral by the end of the calendar year. And again, he said sold. And again, I said, well, wait, maybe my new husband has an opinion yeah, <laughs> about right, this topic. Right. So I went home that night and uh, began to uh, talk to my husband about it. And I said, hey, uh, great news. We're going to buy a, a home care company. And he said, 
what do you know about home yeah. care? And I'm like, oh, I don't know anything. Right. <laughs> but, it, but it just doesn't seem that hard. And as we talked about it a little bit, just decided that uh, it was a good time to uh, to take a risk. And so I went back literally the next day and uh, we began the process of transferring the ownership of the business into my name. I was 25 years old. Wow. And I had been in home care for 58 days yeah. when I became the owner of a home health care company. And so it was really a, an unusual set of circumstances, still knowing absolutely nothing about home care, only what you could have learned in 58 days right. <laughs> worth of time. And right. so it was an, an interesting entry into the industry and one that I frankly thought would just be short term. You know, I thought, well, I'll, I'll still just do this for a year or two and then I'll, I'll go back to being a, a stay-at-home mom. But when I got into home care, I just fell in love with it. I yeah. fell in love with what we do for patients. I fell in love with the opportunity to really create a great work environment for our people. And kind of that combination just drew me in uh, to the industry and really made me realize that this was my calling. Sure. And uh, not just my job or my career, but this was the place where I could really find my inspiration. And so we ended up having three great kids, but uh, but never with a stay-at-home mom yeah. <laughs> around to be part of the day-to-day. And so right. it's uh, it's been really just such a blessing on both fronts to be able to uh, to lead this company and then to help my kids see you know, how to balance, uh, you know, life and family together too. And so it's been, it's been a ton of fun and gosh, to think about all the patients we've been able to help is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And so I know that from state to state, it varies, but in, in Texas, without going too far off topic, um, how hard is it to get a license for say a home health? And, and back when, when you had started, uh, the company originally were they hard to come by like they are now? What, what did that uh, What did that look like, or what does it look like now? Yeah, you know, back in the early '90s, it wasn't that hard. It was kind of a boom period um, in the home healthcare industry. It was, of course, cost reimbursed, but there were a lot of people starting agencies. There was a lot of growth kind of between that 92 and early 2000 period. There was a lot of growth in the industry. And so it was pretty easy. Somewhere, I forget the dates now because it's been far too long ago, but a moratorium uh, was put on on the addition of new uh, provider numbers, particularly in the state of Texas, because there had been such a boom here. And so it's gotten much harder, you know, over the years to start a new provider number. But in those early years, it was a really a, a growth period for home care. Yeah. And so we were fighting, you know, more competitors, you know, tomorrow than we had yesterday kind, sure. of, kind of thing sure. in that day and age. I, and I believe, and I know this goes on the non-medical side too, but I believe this is one of the densest um, as far as like agencies, uh, markets uh, in the nation. Is it that is, correct? It okay. is. Yeah. If you look at uh, Medicare home health agencies, you know, per Medicare beneficiary, we've got, uh, we've got one of the, the strongest ratios of agencies to patients. Yeah. And so uh, obviously you've had tremendous success. Uh, what were some of the lessons that you learned as an entrepreneur and in healthcare that now you impart onto people uh, who are looking to kind of make their way in the industry? You know, I think for me, the, the biggest lesson, and I, I feel like I, I learn it and live into it even more, you know, every day, even though it's been 28 years, is that if you want to take great care of patients, you have to take great care of your people. And so we really built so much of the foundation of our success at Encompass around how do we take care of our people? How do we create an environment that gives them tools and training and resources? How do we create a culture that says, 
thank you. I noticed. I appreciate you. How do we recognize them for the hard work they do every day? And I think very early on in my career in home health care, one of the first things I did, because I frankly didn't know anything about home care, is I said, I, can I just come ride with you? Yeah. Can I just spend the day with you and, and go door to door? And for about two weeks straight in the first month of my uh, of my time of owning a home health agency, I spent it in the car with nurses and therapists and home health aides and visiting patients. And I was struck by... Um, the similarity of their stories. So often those those clinical caregivers that were part of our team would tell me things like, you know, after I got my license, I, I went to the hospital and I worked 12-hour shift after 12-hour shift until eventually I just felt like I had nothing left to give. And I left there and I went to the nursing home and, you know, that was worse. And, you know, they'd say, now I'm in home care. I'm just kind of hoping it won't be awful. And I remember thinking, huh, I don't really know that much about this industry yet, but surely I could create a work environment that's not awful. Right. What if I could really pour back into these people? Right. I've just watched them. They pour out their heart and soul all day, every day into really challenging situations and difficult homes and stressful environments. Who's pouring into them? Right. What if we could be that company that gives back to our people? If we do, I think I'll, they'll give back to our patients. And I've just witnessed They'll do it even if we don't do that, but they won't be able to do it for long. How yeah. could we create an environment where they could sustain that kind of outcome? And I think that lesson is a lesson I still learn every day, that, that our people need to be poured into. Sure. They need tools. They need development. They need education. They need resources. They need appreciation. And if we'll do that well as a company, I think that's been a huge catalyst to how we've been able to sustain growth. Uh, over these years. Yeah. The good care kind of flows from that and from happy, satisfied, taking care of uh, uh, teams in general. Yeah. We, we have a really simple mission statement that we kind of live by here at Encompass. It's a better way to care. And we really think not only is that statement simple and easy to embrace, but we think it's really important, the sequence of things, that yeah. really the first thing a better way to care means is that the company is going to provide a better way to care for you. Yeah. We're going to take care of you as an employee, and then we're going to ask you, once fully empowered, to take a better way to care for your patient. Right. And we know when the patient gets that kind of experience, they're going to tell someone, friends, neighbors, family yeah. members, but doctors almost always. And when the doctor hears over and over and over again about the great care, then he'll start to send us more business. Right. And he sends us more business, we'll grow. And if we grow, we can manage the financial challenges of our industry and pour back in with our uh, with our proceeds back into our culture and just keep that circle going. And that's really what I would say if I look back over the last 21 years and say, really, why have you been so successful? How did you grow from a single location that we started here at Encompass uh, in 1998 to now being the fourth largest provider in the nation of home care and hospice services, I would say it's because every day we woke up with one thing in mind, deliver a better way to care. Yeah. And for me as the CEO, that meant take care of our people by building great policy and great process. It meant, you know, creating a benefit structure that would meet their needs. And for our team members, it meant delivering a great care, delivering a better way to care for our patients. And it was simple. Yeah. It's not rocket science, <laughs> right? but it's hard to live into every day. And it's hard to live into in an environment of regulatory change and of reimbursement constri uh, constraints. And so we've just tried to be as true to that mission yeah. as we can be every day. And we've challenged our team members and I think inspired our team members to do the same. And that's really been our magic formula. Yeah. And you touched on something. Uh, whenever I have the opportunity to interview uh, people who lead, especially large companies or very influential companies. I always uh, find it interesting because sometimes those people have a clinical background and sometimes they ha don't have a clinical background, but now they're leading a clinical company. So 
uh, on both sides of that, what advantages did that bring for you that you didn't have a clinical, like a nursing, say, background? And also, were there any specific disadvantages that you found um, trying to lead a clinical organization? Yeah, well, I think for me, I had, frankly, neither a clinical background or even a general healthcare background. And so when I first came in, I just had to ask a ton of questions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, why do you do it that way? And when I got the answers, I didn't just take them at face value. I took them in, but then I tried to go back and say, well, where's the regulation that says, you know, because people would frequently in those early days say, well, the regulations say, and I'm like, where right. does the regulation say? Can right. you show it to me? And what I would often find is that what people thought the regulation said isn't really what the regulation said. Yeah. It had just been some lore that had been passed down over the course of their career. So I right. think not having that knowledge and kind of being a, a searcher and being somebody who really wanted to understand the why of how things, you know, why were we doing things the way we were, caused me to really go back to the source and to challenge what had become kind of common. And I'll give you a great example of that. In that early days of my first business, um, when we were in that cost reimbursed era, well, the philosophy across home care agencies was you really want to get as close to the cost caps as you can without right. going up, going over. So if you could spend 99 cents of every dollar, you won't have left any money on the table. Well, I was an accountant by training and I said, okay, well, what if I only need to spend 78 cents? Right. Can I put the other part of it in my pocket? And they'd say, no, no, you can only, you got to follow this formula. For, I'm like, well, then why do I want to just spend 99 cents? Because I can. Right. If I can give great care and keep our people happy and have strong benefits and I can do it efficiently at 78 cents, the accountant in me said, do that. Right. And gosh, everyone will look at me and be like, oh, that poor little girl, she doesn't <laughs> understand how the game really works. But as luck would have it, in, uh, in 1996, a public company came along and they kind of heard how we operated and how counterculturally that countercultural that was at the time. And they said, hey, do you really run 25% below the cost caps? And I said, yes, that's, that's our typical average. And they said, well, we'll pay you a multiple of that cushion five times over. Well, at the time, we were a little over $35 million in revenue. It was about a $40 million purchase price. So here was this cost-reimbursed business that I didn't think I'd ever make anything except for a salary out of. And now, all of a sudden, here comes somebody offering me $40 million right. <laughs> to buy the business. And it didn't take very long for me to say sold, yeah, right, right. <laughs> just like the guy had said to me. Uh, unfortunately, I was still pretty young. I wasn't even 30 years old at the time. I didn't ask enough questions. I didn't do enough research. And as it turns out, the uh, company that I sold to didn't turn out to be uh, the best of characters. As a matter of fact, even though they were a public company at the time, they uh, ended up uh, being investigated and raided oh. by the OIG and the FBI. And the CEO and CFO eventually, uh, a couple years later, ended up going to jail for Medicare fraud. Yeah. And so um, the good news for me, uh, ironically enough, is that I got fired from that job. I was <laughs> I was going to sell them the business and continue on as a vice president. Uh, but I kind of kept standing in the way of some of the things that they wanted to do that I just didn't think were the right things to do. Yeah. So they kind of got fed up with that. And they fired me about 11 months into my employment there. And then about seven months later, the FBI came in and raided them. And uh, and the, the whole thing began to fall apart. So what I thought was kind of the darkest day of my career, being fired from a business that I had, had really kind of built yeah. from the ground up, uh, turned out to be the best day right. <laughs> of my career because I was not around for any of that uh, that part. But one of their first actions after that was to uh, was to uh, close down the entire Texas operations. And when they did, 
my former employees started to call me back and they said, hey, can we put the band back together? And yeah. I checked with the lawyers and verified we could. And sure enough, we started, that's when we started Encompass in, yeah. uh, in August of 1998 after Home Health Corp of America filed bankruptcy in July. So one month later, we were back in business and building, you know, what is today the fourth largest provider in the nation. So, you know, I, I love that story because you just never know. Sometimes right. what you think seems like your worst failure or your worst disaster. And, you know, in retrospect, that was the, the thing that, that created, you know, yeah. the real success and, and saved me from all kinds of risk and challenge. So you just sometimes have to believe <laughs> that there is, a, there is a higher purpose for why things happen. So, so that is a fantastic transition into uh, a little bit of the background on Encompass. So you had mentioned that you started it in 98. Is that correct? Yeah, I started in August with, of 98 with one location here, here in Dallas. Dallas. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, when did you add hospice? I didn't add hospice until 2011. So we really, um, one of the things that, that I've always kind of believed as an entrepreneur is that, um, you know, don't do too much. Don't, don't get too broad until you're really good and deep right. in your core areas. And over the years, people frequently tried to distract that, distract me from that approach and say, you know, you should do this or you should do that, or you should right. try, try this or that. Uh, I think I was able to always kind of say, no, I, th- I think we're going to stick to our knitting. We're going to yeah. do what we do really well. And we did that with our home care division, staying exclusively in home care from 1998 until 2011. And then in 2011, we bought our first agency that included both home health and hospice. And yeah. we spent really a whole year, almost 15 months, deciding whether or not we wanted to keep the hospice part of that business. And knowing that if we wanted to keep it, we were going to need to grow it. And at the end of the 15-month assessment period, we decided that really it was time, that our home care business was well-established, that we had great processes and tools and technology in place, and that we really needed to now extend that better sure. way to care mission to patients who were experiencing end-of-life needs. And so um, we began in earnest to really build that business in 2013 yeah. and, uh, and are now pleased that we've, uh, we've grown up to being one of the largest hospice providers in the nation, serving about 3,000 hospice patients a day. Yeah. And they, they go so hand in hand with each other. Uh, Absolutely. It, I'm sure now it seems like a logical um, flow of uh, patient life cycle or patient needs in general, but I can imagine at first... Uh, although having gone into home health without knowing much about it, hospice <laughs> must have seemed at least you had an in, like an introduction to the industry and you knew a little bit about it uh, going in there. But what uh, what was the beginning of Encompass, uh, the home health side like? Uh, what did you do right away? I know you said getting the band back together a little bit, but were you immediately? What were the first steps? Was it bringing doctors on? Was it, was it bringing nurses back? Was it uh, rekindling old, uh, you know, hospital or or uh, physician relationships? How did how did you get that off the ground? Yeah. So our, uh, our our business that we had sold to Home Health Corp of America was all based in Texas. So when we started back out with Encompass in in Dallas in 1998, the first thing we did was kind of reassemble a team, both at the executive level as well as kind of at the sales level and the branch level of, of folks that had been part of our prior organization who had been sort of left on the sideline right. as a result of that uh, bankruptcy. So we were able to put together a great team right away. But the, really the first thing we did is we went out and we bought 17 other providers within okay. the first 18 months. 
We bought 17 other businesses. It was a time from 1997 to 2000 in the home care industry was a time of really a lot of disruption, kind of like we're going through uh, in the upcoming 2020 year. Medicare changed their reimbursement rules in uh, in late 97, and that caused over the course of that 97 to 2000 period about a 30 percent contraction in the number of national home health providers. In the state of Texas, that was actually more like 40 percent of the providers went away during that three-year period. Well, that was right when we were starting. And as I mentioned, in our prior world where everybody else had sort of been focused on spend 99 cents of every reimbursable dollar, we really were operating pretty differently. And so the change that Medicare had had made that was causing all of this disruption really fed right into the way we had always operated our business anyway. So we were able to assemble a team you know, go out and really run the business the way we had been running it previously, acquire agencies who were kind of in distress for really low investment and build back um, a cohort of agencies. And so we kind of built up those 17 acquisitions into 10 operating units. And then we took it from there uh, over the course of the next few years, brought in some outside capital eventually starting in 2004, and then uh, really began to step on the accelerator from an acquisition perspective. Now have about 330 locations in 32 states. Wow. And so the first uh, ac- this first wave of wave of, accusi- uh, the first wave of acquisitions, excuse me, uh, were those all in the Dallas area? Was it throughout Texas? Or at that point, had you already gone outside of Texas? That first 17 were all in Texas. Okay. And so, so really, again, kind of going back to some of the, we'd been in 14 markets previously. Right. So we kind of went back to some of those markets we knew sure. well, where we had team members that we, you know, trusted that we knew we could be successful with. So we kind of really pretty quickly over the course of a couple of years, were able to reassemble a big portion of my first company right. uh, into the new company and then began to spread from there, took Oklahoma as our second state and then began to just, you know, grow uh, kind of in a hub, hub and spoke way from there out across the nation. Yeah, that must have been a great, this is a side note, but that must have been a great feeling. Not only uh, that you had mentioned kind of what could have been your darkest day kind of morphing into this new thing, but to be able to bring so many people back that had had a hand in the first uh, the first uh, venture into it, to be able to bring them back and let them share in that, that must have yeah, been a great Yeah, absolutely. And experience. some of those are still here today. Yeah. So that's, that's fun as well. So some of those folks from that first business are still, still working right along side us today. So it's really fun. Yeah. And so, so many companies don't ever get to experience, regardless of industry or uh, what they do, don't get to experience growth from being a local to a regional to a national provider. Can you just talk a little bit about what that journey was like? Because as much as the learning curve must have been high getting into it, then as you go from state to state and from place to place, that learning curve probably gets exponentially steeper. Um, what, what was that process like uh, and how did that go? Yeah, so, well, it was hard um, yeah. because, you know, for us, because culture, as I mentioned earlier, is such a founding principle right. of how we operate it's not that hard to go buy stuff, honestly. If you right. have capital, you, there's plenty of things out there to go buy. The hard part is to really integrate it into a seamless culture. And I think that was the part that was the most challenging. Um, you know, how would it look in Boston, Massachusetts? How right. will it look in Yuma, Arizona? How is it going to yep. look in Pensacola, Florida? And knowing that we were really spreading into these very, you know, far and wide geographies from Oregon to Florida to Arizona to, to Massachusetts, how are we going to create a cohesive culture? 
return. I think of all the things, gosh, that we've done over the last 21 years, it, it is the continuity of our culture and the reality that that better way to care philosophy really is the guiding principle in all of our locations yeah. that I'm most proud of because that's been the hardest work is to try to get that really instilled in a way that you can say, you know, as to your local leaders, if you'll inspire your team, if you'll really inspire them to fulfill this mission, not only will they be happier, but your patients will be happier. Our growth will be better. Our success will be better. But I also think another part of that success was recognizing the importance of process. And so I I also have another phrase I use a lot, which is that uh, culture follows process. And I just don't think you can be nice enough to people to make them deal with chaos all day long. That at the end of the day, if you really want to create a sustaining culture, it has to be done on the foundation of great process where you've really got seamless way that you operate, where you hold people accountable to a standard, where everybody's expected to meet that standard. And then when you take that kind of environment and pour culture on top of it, gosh, it'll take root and really grow. And I think that's what we found is that if we had good process and then we came back with genuine culture on top of that, really good things could happen for our company. So I think that was a big part of that national expansion yeah. was that we had a foundation of process to build from. Yeah. You know, that that reminds me um, of an, someone else I was I heard speak at a conference um, some time ago uh, in kind of the other life. The company that, that we work for has locations in California, Arizona and Texas. So not uh, across the nation uh, as you are currently, but... One of the things that we uh, learned as with the expansion was the regulatory differences. And then more recently, I was listening to someone in Texas here talk about even the um, reluctance to uh, expand things like Medicaid or access to certain things like that. How do you navigate those kind of changes as you move from state to state where um policy and feelings towards policy and uh, might be different from place to place. Yeah, well, we do have the benefit of having uh, across all of our markets, Medicare is our primary payer. So we've got the federal payer and a common set of regulations, you know, generally as it relates to the federal requirements. Now, each state has their own state level regulations, even within the the Medicare arena. And so we do have some nuances that we have to follow on a state by state basis. Um, And then as we look at the kind of the broader payer landscape on a regional and a state level, um, we're, we're pretty selective about the relationships that we enter into. We really only want to step into those relationships where we feel like we can really create a win-win-win kind of relationship. We want to be a value to the payer. We want to create value for ourselves, but most of all, we want to be a value to the patient. And so, you know, being discerning about what relationships we'll take, we we don't think all revenue is good. Um, We think we've got to be able to walk away from every revenue dollar realizing success in all three of those arenas. And so, um, you know, I think it's building a team who can really dig into that state level regulation or that Medicaid nuance of a particular payment system and understand, um, you know, what those are. So over time, as we've expanded state to state, it's particularly our billing department, as well as our regulatory yeah. team that's had to have that kind of localized expertise in a market by market basis. Yeah, uh, that I, it all makes sense. And it goes back even to what you touched on uh, before about just because you can spend the 99 cents, you don't necessarily have to. So having that set of principles, I'm sure helps as you expand uh, and decide what business is kind of the right business. Um, That does bring us to one of the main things I wanted to ask you about, which was the merger with um, what was formerly HealthSouth. Um, That was obviously monumental industry-wide. I can only imagine what it was like 
um, here, but can you tell us a little bit about kind of the origin story of that partnership and that merger and um, what you saw as synergies between the organizations that led you to um, joining into that partnership? Yeah, so we, uh, as I mentioned, we had had private equity in actually a couple of rounds of private equity. We had a, a partner come in in 2004 and another partner come in in 2007. And by the time we got to 2014, our 2007 partner was kind of reaching the end of their hold period. And even though things were going pretty well with the business, it was just time uh, to make a transition. And we really thought we would just flip to another private equity fund. And as a matter of fact, we had 45 offers from private wow. equity investors, and we really weren't considering any strategic buyers. I had become friends over the years with the CEO of HealthSouth, Jay Grinney. And Jay called me and he said, hey, I hear your, your business uh, is rumored to be on the market. You know, we'd like to consider it. And I said, you know, no, <laughs> I like you, but no, we, we really want to stay independent. We really yeah. you know, have a lot of interest in the private equity world. And he said, come on, just let us look. And I said, I finally said, okay, you can, you can look, but you can't buy. Yeah, <laughs> and right. so sure enough, they came in and I really have to hand it to them because even though they were the only strategic player in the audience, they recognized that if they were going to have a chance to win the opportunity, they were going to have to be creative. And so they were. They came to the table with something that looked a lot like a private equity structure, but it was under the umbrella of a strategic company. And so it really created this win-win opportunity where we could have, as a management team, the opportunity to roll over equity and participate in our success, but where, as an organization, we would have the opportunity to really create this collaborative environment with the inpatient rehab division and be able to collaborate to transition care, uh, patients' care from the hospital into the home. And, um, and so it's really been an amazing uh, outcome really prompted by the creativity that the CEO and CFO showed in coming up with a structure that made it interesting. We now get uh, about a, have about a 34, 35% uh, clinical collaboration rate. The percentage of patients that come out of those hospitals needing home care that come to our agency represents about 35%, wow. growing up toward 40%. And it was practically zero when right. we started five years ago. And so we've really been able to see, obviously, great volume that has come our way from that program. But better than that, we've seen that the percentage of patients who have to go into nursing homes after their inpatient rehab care has declined. We've seen that rehospitalization rates have improved. And best of all, we've seen patient satisfaction go up. And right. so it's exciting to see the proportion of referrals, but it's really exciting to see the outcome that's being created for patients and that truly care transitions are happening in yeah. a way where the parties that are involved are communicating. They're truly collaborating to the benefit of the patient. So that's been the, the best part of the whole relationship. Yeah. And along the way, you know, I, I appreciate that uh, that HealthSouth was also true to their word because they said, hey, not only will we structure the relationship this way, but we want you to keep your team. We're not going to synergize a single dollar um, of your overhead. You keep doing everything you're doing. Yeah. Um, just do it under our umbrella. So we still have our own structure of HR and benefits and our own financial function. Obviously, we, we report through the public company. We right. work through, um, you know, the compliance oversight of the overall organization and work collaboratively in that regard. But we haven't, we haven't eliminated any positions in the home health organization. So we really get to run um, very much like we have for the entirety of our 21 years, even though these last five or almost five now have been under the uh, under the umbrella of HealthSouth, which even more excitingly has become Encompass Health. So yeah. that was uh, fun in 2018 when the organization decided that they were actually going to jettison their historic name 
and Embrace Encompass as the name for the entire organization. And so the Encompass Health brand was created uh, in 2018. So that's been fun as well. And so I was actually going to ask you about that. Um, was your original company that merged, not not the first one, but right. the one that is now Encompass Home Health and Office, was it already Encompass and they ended up taking that name or was that a name that you both took together? No, we, were, we had been operating as Encompass. Um, we didn't, st- originally in 1998 when we started, we kept the names of all the subsidiaries we bought. But in 2006, we adopted the Encompass Home Health and Ho- Home Health brand and then added Hospice in 2011. So when we came to the partnership in 2014, we had a pretty well-established yeah. history with that Encompass brand. So it was kind of funny when they uh, when the branding organization that was kind of working on this process, and they didn't really intend to change brands. They were frankly just going to do a little bit of a brand refresh on the Health South brand. And I said, hey, I'm good. Don't, don't yeah. mess with me. <laughs> and they said, great. And then, uh, and then the branding company came and they said, hey, we've been doing some research and we really think that there could be a lot of momentum behind a single brand and we think that single brand should be encompass how do you what do you think and i first said no yeah <laughs> you can't have my brand um but it didn't take too long really talking about uh, the value of what that single brand could look like to to avoid confusion for patients families referral sources to realize that hey it's it's time to share the the good brand that we've built at encompass health and now i think together you know we've even accelerated it further uh, for certain than we could have done on our own so it's it's fun to see how easy that transition has been because Health South name had been around a long time. Yeah. Um, so it's really been pretty remarkable to see how seamless the transition's been over the course of the last two years into that uh, into that new Encompass Health brand. So it's been fun. Yeah. And you had mentioned already uh, a few different payment model changes that um, have happened under your tenure. And even before, I, I want, had wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the PDGM stuff that's coming down but i'm we might not even have time to get to that but before before that there's been a lot of focus on value-based care in general and that's even just been in the last five to ten years Mm -hmm. even that a lot of that conversation conversation has shifted how has the uh partnership with the inpatient rehab side really set you up to be a leader in the value-based world i'm thinking even of uh, you know, like total hips and total knees when they changed all of the um, regulation on that. A lot of those things went straight home and straight with uh, home health and with therapy. Um, different changes, even like uh, bundle payment programs and things like that. How has that um, relationship been beneficial as that value-based change has been happening? Yeah, I, we definitely are seeing that change happening. I think um, I think there's still some evolution to go as it relates to really that true sort of continuum of value-based care. Mm. So even though we're talking about value-based care, we seem to still be talking about it in silo. (laughs) Uh, And it's not really crossing silos yet. And so we are seeing, I can't point to a relationship where I can say, well, you know, now we have this value-based relationship with XYZ payer and they don't care whether we put the patient in an inpatient rehab or home. They just want us to take care of them for, you know, X dollars. And we we don't yet have that. We have some value-based relationships within the home health cycle, Right. Silo, we have some value-based relationships within the earth silo. Yeah. We don't have too many that are bridging um, yet. We Agreed. do think that is absolutely where the future lies, though. And, yeah. and and we think there's some regulation that's going to have to, you know, some waivers of regulation that will have to happen yes. to really make that efficient and to make that happen in the most seamless way. But, but I do definitely believe that at the end of the day, um, care will truly be site neutral, that it won't matter where you're caring for them. It's get the patient to the site where they need to be to achieve their, you know, respective outcomes. And I think we'll be uniquely positioned for that with our earth level of care. 
you know, we can kind of go up because we are hospitals. We can go up to the LTAC level. Right. Um, we can kind of work down toward the SNF level. And then certainly with home health and hospice being able to take patients home, we, we think we'll really have a broad spectrum of, of interest. But there's still some evolution that's going to have to occur, I think, before we're going to see that that blended relationship that crosses over earth and home health. Right. I mean, even just the fact that it still is is paid in a lot of the same ways that it was before or measured in a lot of the same mm-hmm. ways it was before, even with kind of this uh, value-based uh, like, uh, like outlook over the top of it. I think that speaks to, uh, speaks to your point. So uh, as we wrap up here, I had mentioned it a little bit, but the, the patient-driven groupings model is kind of this next evolution that, that has been coming down in uh, for our audience. Again, you and I had talked about this a little bit before uh, off, off air who may not be home health therapy experts. I think everybody has been hearing this acronym over and over and over and over again. With our last couple of minutes here, can you just help us give a very, a, I understand, a far too general understanding of what is this that we keep hearing about? Sure. Well, there there are a few big things that were intended. The patient-driven grouping model was really intended to do a couple major things within home care. The first one was historically from 2000 till today, we have had uh, reimbursement for therapy services that has been volume driven. So right. the more visits you did, the more reimbursement you got. And Medicare had a real concern with that. Certainly as you move toward a value-based arrangement, they felt like, wait a minute, that's payment for volume, not for value. Right. We want to change that. And so one of the first things that PDGM did is it really uh, it pulled out that volume-based driver for reimbursement. And it tried to really hone the way patients are paid to make it more based on patient characteristic. And what are the patient's characteristic? And that that's how we should determine reimbursement. And so I think that was a good change. I have gone on the record as saying I think they might have overcorrected a sure. little bit. Conceptually, I agree with it. I think it's going to be interesting as we get into the deployment phases in 2020 to see if, in fact, they may have overshot that yeah. correction a little bit and undervalued the benefit therapy provides. We find we find huge value to patients from therapy services. So we're going to keep a close eye on that and a close communication with CMS about that. But then in but then in general, in addition to that, they've really taken this focus toward patient characteristic and said, really, there's four things we care about when it comes to setting reimbursement for patients. We care about where they came from. Did they come from the community or did they come from the hospital? We care if they came directly from there or if there's kind of been a gap in their hospitalization. So kind of uh, uh, location and timing is important to us. Clinical category is important to us. So do they fall? Where do they fall into a coding group? Um, Functional impairment level, which is a real key indicator of whether or not a patient is going to thrive or not in the home setting or be rehospitalized. We want to know about their functional impairment level and we want to know how many comorbidities they're dealing with. And so really those four big characteristics are the four big elements of defining payment in the new model. And uh, and then in addition to kind of changing to that characteristic-based approach, the other thing they did is they shortened the way payments are paid from being 60-day episodes to two 30-day payment periods within a 60-day episode. So you still get an order for care for the full 60 days, but you'll be paid distinctly for each of the two 30-day periods within that. And so those are some pretty major changes. It's not transformative, but it's significant. Yeah. 
And I think it has the potential to cause a lot of disruption. Along the way, unrelated to PDGM, they also phased out one of the cash flow elements of home care, which is this concept of a request for anticipated payment. And in the last 20 years, you've been able to bill for 60% of the episode at the beginning of the episode. Gotcha. That's going to drop down to only 20% and only be applicable to the first 30-day period. And then again, wow. applicable, you know, at the right. next 30 day period. Right. So it's going to have a huge diff- impact on cash flow. Probably, uh, you know, for some agencies, we could see extension of DSO by as much as 20 days and even 30 days in some instances, if you're not really right. on top of getting doctor's orders all in and signed right. on time. So that's going to cause probably as much disruption as will the actual PDGM model. So there's some pretty big changes going on. And then the other uh, kind of uh, wrench in the process that CMS put out there is they said, in addition to all of that, we're going to change the whole system. We're going to change the way the cash flow works. But we're also going to assume that you're going to figure this system out. And so we're going to build in these assumed behavior changes from the very beginning, which is sort of unprecedented, not only in home care, but across all the uh, service lines within Medicare. We're going to assume you're going to figure out better ways to behave, to drive reimbursement. So we're just going to bake in a cut. And originally the proposal was an 8% cut. Uh, It's now been adjusted to about a 4.36% cut, but still pretty significant to deal with all of that at one time uh, has the potential to really kind of turn the industry on its head for a period. And and I think in in particular, the small mom and pop agencies are going to struggle. It's just a lot of change. And if you don't have resources and you don't have expertise and you don't have technology, it's going to be really tough to manage through that kind of trifecta of change all yeah. at one time. It sounds even similar to when they started implementing readmission penalties and it was, okay, we're going to do this, but we're also, it's also 5% right off the top. It's got to be 5% <laughs> less right off the top. Uh, so that it, it seems that that's been a tactic that they have been hoping works. You actually touched on something that I, I did want to ask. You'd mentioned a major um, contracting of the industry um, previously uh, when you first started Encompass. Mm-hmm. Do with what you were just talking about with the mom and pop agencies with some of these changes, is that uh, does that seem to be another trend that we are either in now or heading towards just as it gets more difficult with the new payment models for smaller organizations that may not have the cash flow? I think the cash flow piece in particular is going to result in some major disruption. And I would not personally be surprised to see as much as 20% of the industry um, struggle to survive um, simply because of the change in the cash flow mechanism. Because if you think about home health agencies, about of the of the 12,400 certified home health agencies out there, about 11,000 of them are under a million and a half dollars of revenue. Right. And they probably don't have bank lines of credit and they don't have deep pockets for capital. And so if you extend their cash flow by 20 or 30 days of working capital, they don't have 20 right. or 30 days of working capital. And that's going to be you know, a real problem once they get into the flow of that. We may not see it on January 1st, but boy, put us out at about April 30th. And they're fully in the flow of the new model and the new cash flow. I think they're going to start to really feel that pinch in the second quarter. And so it's going to be interesting to watch uh, and see what happens and to try to be prepared as a provider who does have the capital to manage through through that cycle, to be prepared to to find some successful acquisitions that can help us expand our geography, increase our density, improve our service levels across the country. Yeah, absolutely. And so what will, 
will anything look different for patients? Will they notice, uh, let's say they had some sort of experience with it previously. Will, will something look different from, you know, December 2019 through the beginning of 2020 with these changes that are going into effect? I hope not. Yeah. Um, you know, it shouldn't yeah. because the reality is the patient still needs what the patient needed. Um, I hope that our industry um, continues to honor patient need as the primary and continues to do the right thing. I do worry that when you have a system that creates a real financial pinch, that the, uh, the, the person who comes out on the losing end of that first is the patient. Right. Um, eventually, maybe the provider itself goes out of the business, maybe the employees lose their jobs, but the person who's going to feel the pinch first is the patient who's going to feel that constriction of care. So I, I certainly hope that that doesn't occur, and I hope that our industry can weather through without creating that. But it, it certainly a patient shouldn't feel a different level of care, in my opinion. Yeah. And my last question, and thanks again for sitting down with me. It's been a, a real pleasure uh, to get to talk to you. I feel like I could ask you questions for a significantly longer amount of time, but I, I really appreciate your time. The last thing I wanted to ask is, as they've been implementing a lot of these changes across healthcare, as CMS has been uh, implementing changes in hospitals and in payment structures and across the way they have drawn on uh, industry leaders and industry experts for expertise sometimes, whether they listen or not, I guess is another uh, another question in of itself. But um, have you noticed that? Have you been able to, um, as the, you know, you mentioned being the fourth largest uh, home health and hospice provider uh, in the country, have you had that opportunity to give feedback or give ideas? Do they, do they come to leaders like you uh, when they're looking into some of these new policies? Uh, absolutely. So we're uh, we're a member of the Partnership for Quality Home Health Care, and uh, that's been a group of kind of the largest providers in the nation that come together and really work in, in Washington in a couple of ways. Certainly, we advocate for our industry right. when things like PDGM come along with an 8% cut. We spent a lot of time in Washington uh, talking on the legislative side to say this is this is not a good outcome. Right. This going to be a bad outcome for your patients, for your constituents. And we've got a lot of sponsors on a bill, uh, both in the House and the Senate, didn't end up having to use that because we were able to use the influence of that broad base of support to go back to CMS and say, do you really want to do this? Right. And we were able to get some reasoned responses. So we spent a lot of time, you know, working on the legislative side, but we also spent a lot of time on the regular side, meeting, you know, with CMS, meeting with SEMA Verma, meeting with yeah. HHS and being able to explain, here's what's going on in our industry. And, and I think one of the things I'm proud of about our industry is that we really have been uh, good, particularly in the last 10 or 12 years, speaking with one voice. Even yeah. though there are large providers and small providers, I think we've been able to create a voice for the industry and to really speak for the industry, not just for the for-profit sector or not just for the public company sector, yeah. but really to speak for the industry. Because at the end of the day, the patients that we serve, you know, deserve this benefit. And the large for-profit providers only make up about 20, or, or the public providers only make up about 20% of the total industry volume. If it went perfectly for us and disastrously for everyone else, that would be a terrible outcome right. for patients. And so we try to, to really speak into what is good for the system, what is good for the industry, what is good for the patients that we serve. And so it's been fun to be able to be a part of that. Uh, I personally got lucky because I have a daughter who moved to D.C. two years ago. So at least I get a two for one. Right. <laughs> when I go to D.C., I get to see her as well as uh, spend some time uh, on the Hill. So it's been a, been a great experience to be part of that. Excellent. Well, best of luck with all these changes coming through. And again, thank you for your time sitting down with me today. Great. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much. All right.